Right, morning, um, church. It's, it's really great to be here with you. As you know, every week I tell you, I love being here with you, my church family. Um, so um, this week, we are uh, kind of reconnecting with our year-long journey through the Bible. And if you were here the week before Easter Sunday, you'll remember that Gavin uh, came and inspired us from the amazing book of Esther. And so if you uh, know your order of books in the Old Testament, then you will know, um, you'll be expecting that we are coming to the book of Job today, um, which is like a, one of the first books of wisdom or experience. Before that, we've had books of history. Um, you might be thinking, oh, great, Job. <laughs> that is not a happy book. Um, and I will reference suffering when I talk, but actually that is not the main thing that I'm going to be talking about today. Um, I prayed and God showed me clearly what he wanted to, me to bring to you. Um, so um, what I'm going to do now is we're just going to pray together. And when I've done that, uh, we're going to watch briefly a, a little video. It is not the Bible Project video. Um, it is actually a clip from the Truman Show, and I'll explain to you why. So Lord, I just thank you that you're so clearly here. It's just amazing how you turn up every time when your people gather together. I thank you that you um, have spoken already about how much you love us and how much you just want to fill us, Lord. And I'm so excited for you to just move even more through this word. Uh, I thank you that lives will be changed, uh, that people will understand themselves and understand you so much more clearly from this. And uh, Lord, we just give this to you as continued worship. Amen. So um, the Truman Show clip that you're about to watch, um, if you've never seen the Truman Show, it's a show where basically it follows one man, like the book of Job, but this guy is called Truman. Uh, what he doesn't know is that his whole world is fake, and he lives in a giant TV studio, and from the moment of birth, literally, he has been watched by cameras, which I'm really private, that's my worst nightmare, but he doesn't know it, okay? And uh, basically, in the film, things start to go wrong, and he starts to realise something is a bit weird here um, and he just can't leave wherever he lives the bit we pick it up at is just as he's about to it looks weird walk out of the sky which is basically the horizon which is the back wall of the studio and the director of the show starts to talk to him and the director of the show says lots of things that sound really good they sound really credible they even sound caring but actually he is the counterfeit voice as you hear the director speaking, you will notice that he's obviously got a bit of a God complex, all right? And um, we're going to think about that idea of uh, what is truth in our lives a bit lo uh, more later. But first, let's watch this. So, um, like I said, that voice there, the director's voice, some of the thing he says, things he says sound really good. The, the imagery with the voice through the, the sun and the clouds, it's kind of classic depictions of God. Yeah, But for anyone who knows God, that is so clearly not God, because for a start, he limits Truman, he disempowers him, and he also uses fear to try and control him. And a line to justify Truman's existence is, loads of people watch you and they love it, they're, they're entertained by you. Now, some people have that idea, don't they, about God, they think, is God really a good God, or is he just a bit bored and slightly sadistic, and he likes to just cause us pain when things in heaven aren't, you know, exciting enough. Um, and actually, some of those questions are definitely um, raised in the book of Job. Um, and some of these questions, I would say, are really elemental. They're like fundamental questions um, about humanity and human existence. And it's really clever the way that this one book of the Bible actually explores that through the life of one man. 
So when I look at the book of Job, um, I've worked as an English teacher for loads of years, quite a lot of you know that, I am struck by it because it's a poem and it's dramatic. And it's beautiful in the fact that it's dramatic because it has this cast of central characters and they all get to speak. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of them in a minute, but what's amazing is that God is one of the people who actually speaks directly to us through this text. And that is really important because the big, big questions that come up in this um, book are things like, why suffering? Yeah? And where is God in my suffering? And if you take a step back and think about it, those are fundamentally questions about identity, our identity. Why am I suffering? Why me? What did I do? And God's nature. Is he actually good? And so I think given that there are those questions, it's really amazing that God speaks, like I said, but it's really fascinating as well that he doesn't um, speak a significant, kind of in a significant chunk until the very end of the book. And through this book, um, and a little bit, as I hope we picked up through the film extract, God is really um, offering us a, big, a bigger picture, reminding us that we each have our lives, our own lives, but there's always a bigger picture going on. So before we go into that any further, let me just give you a quick overview of what actually happens in this book, because um, some of you may be familiar with it and some of you may not. So Job is a really, really, I mean, crazy wealthy man, okay? Amazingly wealthy. He is really respected, and he's respected because he's a good man. He's influential, he's upright, he's faithful, and his way of life is moral. So... It's easy for us to even start thinking straight away, oh, okay, well, he must have had a happy ever after. Well, actually, no. Within the first two chapters of this book, and there are 40 chapters, so this is kind of really quick and brutal, all right? He is hit. He loses his wealth, he loses his children, and he loses his health in two chapters, yeah? And then there's 38 more chapters to go of the book. In fact, there's more than that. And, um, and so that is just amazing. If you just even take a step back and think about that, that is devastating. One of those is devastating. All three of them in quick succession. Job actually then gets deserted by most of the people who are supposed to be his friends. They turn out to be fair-weather friends. While he's got his position, while he's got his wealth, they're interested. When he loses that, not so bothered. However... He does have three true friends. If you are familiar with the book of Job, then you're probably used to dismissing them a little bit because you know the end of the story and thinking, well, they weren't good friends. Don't need friends like that. Actually, don't be so quick to judge. So, <laughs> if we look at chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, it says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So while the friends definitely do get it a bit wrong later, they start off from a really good place. Those are great friends actually, aren't they? Everyone else has deserted Job. But these three come together, talk about it and say, you know what, we need to go and show some solidarity. And when they get there, they realize I have no words that can make this better. And they just sit with him. They sit with him in his pain. And they're just there. 
And there's something beautiful and powerful about that. And actually, where it all does start to go a little bit wrong for them is where they actually start to engage in a philosophical debate about why Job is suffering. They try to apply their human logic, their human understanding, to what is fundamentally a much bigger metaphysical issue. Yeah? Um, and as I said, it's amazing because there's another voice. So before God comes in, um, in uh, chapter 38, we have a new voice called Elihu. And he's described as waiting to speak because basically he's younger. So he lets the older guys speak out of respect. And then when he's kind of like, okay, we've not got anywhere, he just can't hold it in any longer. And what's interesting about Elihu is that he actually does represent a new generation. He represents someone who has more of a revelation of the nature of God than the other three. Um, and so he does talk about some things which if you read his bits of the chapter carefully, you will recognize parts of them in what we know from the gospel through Jesus. The three other friends, though, in short, they represent experience, tradition, assumption. And none of those things can satisfy. None of them can explain when life goes wrong. Yeah? They just don't do it. And Job asks questions in the course of the debate with these friends. Fundamental questions about truth. Yeah? I'm not going to go into all of them in detail, but if you're taking notes and you want to read through Job again, you might want to look for them. Okay? So fundamental concern with truth in this book. The truth of identity, truth of God's nature, true purity and righteousness, true wisdom and true revelation, uh, true relationship, sorry. Okay? We're actually only going to focus on two of those questions. Um, and the reason that none of the friends can come up with a satisfactory reason and explanation for Job's suffering is that it, there's no New Testament yet. Jesus hasn't been. And I know it's a bit of a Sunday school joke. If you grew up in church, you know this. What's the answer in Sunday school? Jesus. But the answer is actually Jesus, okay? <laughs> and it's because Jesus hasn't yet come. God incarnate has not yet come. And so they've got no revelation of that. They don't have a revelation of the fact that God loves us so much that he came to the earth and he fulfilled all of the roles um, that Job cries out for in his suffering. But time does not allow for me to go into all of those questions, like I said. But you can read the book at your own leisure. The two big questions are, who am I really and what am I worth? And also, what is God's true nature? So the first question, who am I really and what am I worth? In Job 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 4, he exclaims, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. That is in response to God's first uh, speech in this book. Yeah? And it's actually quite different. So I've said to you, and it's absolutely true, that Job is a righteous man. I mean, he is a really, really good man. Okay? Um, and while he isn't perfect, he's actually considered to be a type, as in a forerunner of Christ, in different ways. Okay? Um, and in chapter 31, he lists all the ways that he's not sinned. He's not sinned sensually, he's not abused power, he's not trusted in his wealth, he's not um, oppressed anyone, and he has actually actively provided justice for people. So you're probably going along with me and thinking, yeah, that, yeah good guy, he's a good guy. But actually... There's something a bit wrong with that. Because it's really easy for us to start thinking, well, he is a really good guy, so he doesn't deserve to suffer. 
But that is not the point, is it? Because he does suffer in this book. And actually, again, if you take a step back and think about it, that line of thinking leads you to only one conclusion. And that conclusion is that Job's identity and value in the world, and actually to God, rest only in what he does and what he has. And that is the fundamental thinking behind the three friends and what they say. And again, that, that line of thinking is prevalent in our society, so it doesn't necessarily even sound that wrong. But if we think about it, we've heard that line of thinking before, as I said, from the three friends. And they say that you must have done something wrong to be suffering. Yeah? Um, you must have done something wrong to now not have material wealth. But they are looking only at a level of circumstances and an earthly level. The other place that we hear that line of thought in this book is in chapter 1 and 2, and it's actually the voice of Satan, the adversary. He is the counterfeit voice. And he is the voice, like the director in the extract from The Truman Show, seems to be saying things that sound good. They may even sound like they care about you, but they don't. In fact, the only place that they're coming from is a place of willful destruction and hatred. Satan is described as the father of lies, and we need to remember that. And the father of lies loves to reduce everything down to a transaction, to business, not relationship. And so if you've got this image that, well, if I'm good enough, if I kind of have enough, then maybe I'll make it over the line and God will accept me, you're buying into Satan's lie. That is not God's truth. And it's easy for us to think, oh, I don't have that. But actually, we all need to take a step back and be wary against that because it's in our culture so much. So as I said, um, Jesus in John 8, chapter 8, verse 44 says that Satan is the father of lies. He tells us in John 10.10, 10, the first half of the verse, that Satan is a thief who comes only to steal, steal to kill and destroy. Well, if we look at what happens to Job, that's exactly what happens to him. Yeah? It's got Satan's fingerprints all over it. Yeah? Um, and then Jesus offers us hope in John 10.10, 10, the second half of that verse. You probably know it well. Because he says that he came that we might have life and have it to the full. Jesus makes it clear that he is the antidote to all of Satan's poison. Yeah? He is the provider of true life, of full life, and he is the victorious overcomer. He is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15 that Satan's head will be crushed. Yeah? Jesus really is the answer. Okay? And so if that perspective, that what we do and what we have is wrong, well, we need to find a new measure, don't we, on a new source of identity. So in Job chapter 1, verse 8, and also chapter 2, verse 3, God is the one who actually draws Job to Satan's attention. She's, again, when you think about it humanly, you're a bit like, God, what are you doing? I'm a good guy. Why? Okay? But God, is, God knows what he's doing. So he describes Job. He says, he says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
And then in chapter 2, that he, uh, verse 3, he adds on, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Okay, so that is, in the first two chapters, Satan and God have two little conversations um, where Satan basically says, God, uh, the only reason that Job is faithful is because you've given him loads of stuff. He doesn't actually care about you. If you let me take away his status, his wealth, take away his kids and stuff, his family, it's going to curse you. Job doesn't. And then he comes back, says, let me have another swipe. Yeah? Well, after God again has said, look, my guy Job still worshipping me. And uh, he says, so then Satan says, no, but you have protected his health. And God says, okay, you can, you can touch his health, but you cannot take his life. So even though he, you know, Job is oppressed, there are even safety limits. Okay? But even then, Job refuses to curse God. Okay? And that is amazing. And that is what God sees. It is Job's integrity, his wholeness of heart, his wholeness of character. Job trusted God. And God's description was, because in all of this hardship, he doesn't sin by charging me, God, with wrongdoing. Yeah? And so it is that attitude of heart that expresses trust in God that is always pointed towards God. It's a posture of worship if you think about it. Yeah? A life of worship. That is what has actually um, made God so proud of Job. Yeah? And that is where um, God starts to see, you know, sees his value. And I think that's amazing, just to say, because Daniel brought that word about the power of thanksgiving and breakthrough, and it's all tied up yeah, in the worship. Um, that idea that in praise, in thanksgiving, in the posture of worship, that is where our breakthrough is, because that is where God is. Yeah? Um, and even though um, Job goes through loads of questions, and he does, he asks loads of valid questions like I alluded to before, God, still at the end of the book, says that Job has spoken truth about him. So I just wanted to throw in there for people, because in so many of us, there are going to be people who are having a hard time right now. Yeah? God can totally handle your questions. It does not, he doesn't see that as you being faithless. Okay? Ask your questions to your loving father. He can take it but keep your heart soft towards him. Yeah? So, what does God say about Job? Well, I've just uh, described a bit more, but in essence, he says that Job is his heart sure, as in his heart is dependent. It's never going to let me down. Worshipping servant, all right? And it's turned towards him. And I just want to point out again that idea that it is God who actually highlights Job to Satan, so God is the one who implicitly invites Satan to battle. And the battleground is Job. And that shows you how priceless Job is to God again. And also that God, kind of, if you like, takes a risk on Job. Yeah? God has more faith in Job, perhaps, than Job has in himself. Yeah? In his many questions, Job cries out for a mediator, a heavenly witness to his innocence, and a redeemer. Who fulfills all those roles? Well, even though it is before the incarnation, God fulfills all of those roles. He uh, overabundantly restores Job's life at the end, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus' restoration of superabundant life that he gives to each of us through the cross. Um, and no one other than God can do that. How priceless is Job? 
The question is, how priceless are you? Yeah? You are so priceless that he gave his one and only son. We know that Sunday school verse, John 3:16, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have, have everlasting life. I'm going to have to speed up a bit, but um, the second question is also really important, which is, what is God's true nature? So I've talked about the dialogue between Satan and God in the first two chapters. And there's a bit in chapter 23, verses 3 to 5, where Job basically says, gosh, if I knew where I could find God, then I would go and have it out with him. See what he's got to say. And um, that is interesting, and that's honest, but that is a bit borderline-y. That is perhaps different from the questions, because it's implying that God has to answer a case to Job. God doesn't have to answer a case to any of us. Yeah? And it's really striking that God, when he does turn up, he speaks to Job out of the storm. Yeah, that's chapter uh, 38, verses 1 um, and uh, 42. Um, sorry, I've got the wrong reference there. It's 38, verse 1, and I've got the wrong reference for the second one, but it's in a few chapters later. Um, when God turns up, he speaks through the storm, and what he makes really clear is that he's actually been watching Job really carefully. He's been really cl- close, and he's been present. And that's amazing, because think of the image of a storm. There are a few crazy people who like to go outside and dance in storms. I love dancing, but I don't do that in thunderstorms. Most people like to be inside, in the dry, not with the thunder, not with the lightning, okay? Storms generally are vicious, they're dangerous, they cause havoc. Job is in the middle of a storm, we can agree that, right? But what's amazing is, again, we see a foreshadowing of a New Testament truth. Jesus is the God who more than once turned up out of the middle of the storm, yeah, and brought peace and resolution to his disciples. So the first one is um, in um, Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36, and then Mark 6, verses 45 to 56. So in one of them, he walks towards them on the water in the middle of a storm and then gets into the boat with them. And as soon as he gets into the boat, the winds and the waves calm down, yeah? But just to pause on that story a little minute, he's actually walking towards them. Not just having a little light meander, you know, like, oh, I'm just having a stroll on the stroll on the sea. It's nice. No, he's walking towards them. He has purpose. He knows where they are in the middle of the storm. That is true for you in your storm. Jesus knows where you are, and he's actually on a beeline for you. Okay? Um, the other one is um, where Jesus' disciples are in a boat, and there's a crazy storm going on. And it must have been a crazy storm, because they're professional fishermen, <laughs> and they're scared. Yeah, Um, and Jesus is in the boat, sleeping. (laughs) Yeah, and they wake him up, you know, and again, it's easy for us with the New Testament to be like, oh, faithless disciples. Actually, (laughs) I think I might have been waking Jesus up too. Yeah, it says, if you read that text carefully, it does say it's a really bad storm and kind of, it's fair enough that they were scared. Yeah, to a degree, in the human. Jesus, though, wakes up and... Again, he stills the storm, yeah? Both of these episodes show that Jesus is fully present and he is fully in control, okay? Whatever your circumstances suggest, he is with you and he has it in hand, okay? The only thing that disappoints Jesus a little bit in that situation, but there's always grace, is that the disciples don't trust him because he sort of 
I'd hope that by now they'd know who he is because of what he said and because of what he's done and because they've been in his presence. We must try not to be like the disciples in that way. Yeah, we must try to be people of his presence so that we know who he is. Okay. Um, in a similar way um, to the idea that God is present um, and uh, that he kind of uh, reveals himself, when he does actually turn up in Job, he doesn't answer a single question. Literally, not one. Yeah? All he does is assert his sovereignty. He basically says, um, and where were you at the origin of this amazing thing of, in creation and that thing and that thing and that thing? And of course, Job can only say, oh, I wasn't there um, because you're God. Um, and God makes it really plain that he's sovereign, that he has no case to answer to Job and he doesn't need to explain to anyone. And the question of why then to the suffering um, you know, isn't because he's heartless. It's not because he needs to be amused like in the Truman Show. It's because he has a correct perspective. He has perfect understanding and he is infinitely good. Okay? And what's amazing is, if you look at Job again, it's clear that he has been at work in the midst of Job's suffering. What has he been doing? Because he's been silent. Well, he's been preparing the ground for the transformation of mourn mourning into joyful dancing. He's been graciously furnishing a return for Job to his characteris characteristic posture of praise. Yeah? And wholeness of character. So God is sovereign, but in the book of Job, we also see that God is generous, that he's faithful, that he's ever watchful, and that he is the source of truth. And above all, perhaps... For our perspective, God is always worthy of worship. Yeah? Because of who he is, not what he gives us. Yeah? He's always present. Because in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has already come near. That's Matthew 4.17. Final thoughts then. Relationship is key to revelation. So although the book of Job offers no direct answers to the question of suffering, we can learn a lot from it. and Hopefully you've begun to glean that already. I think the first thing must be addressing this question of our identity and value. Um, and it's that they are not found in material wealth or accomplishments or a trouble-free life. Jesus promised none of that. <laughs> what, good, what does God say about you? That is where your identity is found. That is where it needs to be um, Founded, it is the voice of truth. God says that you are his beloved child. And that's amazing because actually in context with the book of Job, he praises Job, but the best that in this in that time, the best he can describe Job as is his servant. You are his beloved child. Yeah? He has actively sought you out and he has adopted you into his family. You have all the rights that go with that. Okay? You are worth the life of his one and only son. You are worth the most costly rescue plan ever executed and which was planned from before the foundation of the world. God says that you are righteous in Christ and in fact that you are his righteousness. He says that you are his ambassador, that you are seated in heavenly places, that you can change the world bringing his kingdom. He says that he has he has full life for you and that you can live in wholeness. He says that you can be truly and fully known, faults and all, and still be loved and deeply desired. And as for that liar, the adversary, yeah, Satan, God says that you can resist him and he will flee from you because he only looks like a roaring lion. Jesus is the real lion, the lion of Judah. And he's also perfect love, by the way, which casts out fear. 
I really felt when I was preparing that some people in here are struggling with fear. Remember that. You are in relationship with the Lion of Judah who is perfect love, and perfect love casts out fear. Fear has no place in your life. And to be honest, that massive list I just read out is the tip of an iceberg. It's all in the Bible, yeah? All of it. So get into it, read it more, be thirsty for it, and hide it in your heart like David says in Psalm 119. And then secondly, just in terms of God, well, who is God? Well, God is good. He's sovereign. He's always present and engaged in our lives. And no matter what may be going on in our immediate situation or in the bigger picture, our God is a good. Yeah, our God is Jesus Christ, the servant king and commander of the Lord's army, in whose mouth is truth and whose words the very winds and waves obey. Jesus is your king, your brother, your lord, your lover, your support, your strength, your redeemer, your mediator, your truth. Jesus is the Lord your God who pursues you because he desires relationship to be known by you. It's what he's always wanted. And as we've seen over the past few weeks from the garden in Eden to the tabernacle to the temple, God always wants to be with us. And then we see it above all in the God-man Jesus, God who came to earth and made his dwelling among us. So both God and man desire to be known. And so just finally, Job says at the end of the chapter, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, which is 42 verse 5. Well, how do we do that? Well, God wants us to be people of his presence. He wants our hearts always turned towards him in worship. He wants us to be people of his word, people who are in love with him and who seek his face, his eyes and voice, and who know him. In that place of presence, revelation comes as a byproduct of worship and communion. Revelation of who he is, and then revelation of who he made you to be. In this way, you will guard your heart in the course of your life which is important because everything else flows from there. So guard your hearts by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Okay, I would really like to pray over everyone now. So if we could stand up, I'll pray over you just as we finish. Father God, I just thank you so much that you are sovereign God, but you're also our good, good Father. I thank you that you love every person here, that they are your beloved child. Whether or not they've accepted your lordship, they are your beloved child. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that right now you're just washing over this place. You are renewing identity. That where people have let lies settle in themselves, accidentally or unknowingly, that you're just breaking them now and you are releasing them from them. I thank you that you are washing your truth into them. The truth of who you say they are. I thank you that hearts are breaking into new levels of relationship and worship with you. Lord, that people are going to see the world differently. I thank you for those people who were struggling with fear that they're going to be amazed that those things that seem to bind them in fear just will have no effect on them from now on, Lord. And we just thank you that you are truth. And Lord, um, if you say um, agree with this last statement, say amen. If not, then don't. We commit to pursuing you as you pursue us, Jesus. Amen. Amen. There we go.